Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is LaBrenda Garrett Nelson for a conversation regarding DNA, oral history, and an enslaved ancestral couple. Have you considered the role DNA might play in collaborating the oral history of your family? Well, LaBrenda Garrett Nelson is going to share with us a case study today. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about LaBrenda. LaBrenda Garrett Nelson is a trustee and president of the Board for Certification of Genealogists. After working as a corporate tax attorney for 35 years, she retired in 2013 and turned her attention to her longtime avocation of genealogy. She is now a full-time genealogist focused on writing and teaching and currently serves as the Register General of the Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage, a national lineage society that honors ancestors who were enslaved in the United States before 1870. In 2016, LaBrenda published a guide to researching African-American ancestors in Lawrence County, South Carolina, and selected Finding AIDS, an award-winning book that was held in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's long-running genealogy column as a model for researching African-Americans in South Carolina and other states. LaBrenda received a 2019 Distinguished Service Award from the Utah Genealogical Association for her instrumental guidance in support of new programs and codified policies for SLIG. So let me give just a warm welcome to LaBrenda Garrett Nelson to the show. Welcome, LaBrenda. Uh, thank you, Bernice. And, and let me say I'm so happy to, that you're back on Blog Talk Radio because this is such a great service. You contribute so much to the entire field. Well, I have people like you and others that are willing to come on and just share their research and their journeys. And so let's talk about your research. So take us a 
take us through your research journey to identify your Garrett third great-grandparents and their parents. I would be happy to, and, and I can say, although I can't say when, that your listeners will be able to read about case study and an upcoming issue of the National Genealogical Society Quarterly. And I want to begin oh, by wonderful. <laughs> I want to begin just by talking about the heightened significance of oral history when it comes to researching enslaved ancestors. I have read, I've heard it said that, for example, enslaved communities were not the only people who were illiterate, and so that's not a reason to uh, add or give this uh, oral history extra credibility. But when I hear that, what I think about are a couple of things. One is that it's true there were other illiterate communities in the United States in the 19th and 18th centuries, but I don't think there was any other community where that were uh, subject to laws that prohibited people from teaching them to read and write. So most of our could not create their own records. Also, when I consider that most of the people who were taken from Africa were taken from the West Africa, and I, and I know about the strong cultural tradition of reverence for ancestors and the transmission of oral history. When I take that into account, and, and then I read uh, things like the historian um, Johnson, who talked about enslaved communities living under the constant threat of separation whether it was by sale or whether it was because an enslaved person was gifted to a daughter on her marriage. All of those factors, to me, uh, my personal opinion is that all of those factors mean that our oral history should be given greater credibility than it might if it came out of some other community or ethnic group. Having said that, I always urge folks when I lecture to document as much of that oral history as you can. So one of the things that your coming article is just the kind of detail and, and the length to which I went to glean as much information as I could to document what had essentially come down um, by oral tradition. The other thing to point out is that the article reflects really decades of my work and the work of earlier family historians documenting our Garrett line, but the DNA overlay did not do away with the necessity to do that. One of the things that the uh, genealogy standards that were published in 2019 make clear is that DNA doesn't alone doesn't prove anything. And an example I like to use is the example of um, a parent who has an identical twin that for most of us who are using these commercial direct-to-consumer DNA tests, uh, they're not looking at regions that might differ between identical twins. So technically, a DNA test can't even prove parentage um, using these commercial uh, consumer tests, direct-to-consumer tests. But in every case, you cannot use DNA without additional documentation. And I'll, I'll go into that a little later, but the, the fact of the matter is, 
beyond, say, a second cousin, the amount of DNA shared by relationships beyond that relationship could span a number of relationships. And you would have no way of knowing exactly what relationship you share unless you have done some sort of documentation to guide you to that conclusion. Now, even having said that, I, I want to also just make clear that I started studying this um, some years ago. I do not hold myself out as a, an expert in genetic genealogy. However, I, you know, I took a week-long institute course. I you know, listened to multiple webinars, read all of the, the books that are recommended. The thing that uh, struck me, especially in lectures on this subject, um, was the insistence on people needing to have complete pedigrees in order to use this new tool, what was then a brand new tool. And I, I remember going up to a, an instructor at a week-long institute and saying that when I hear that, what I'm hearing is that in people who descend from enslaved African-Americans can't use this new tool because invariably, I don't care how long your folks might have been free, if you were African-American, descended from an African-American family who was here before the Civil War, some one or more or probably many more of your lines include enslaved ancestors. And because of the circumstances I described earlier, not being able to create their own records and family ties being severed involuntarily, you are going to have gaps in your pedigrees. Um, and I said to this instructor that I'm going to have to like look into this more and, and kind of break some new ground because Every time I hear that, I'm hearing, you, can't, you don't have a complete pedigree, you can't use this tool. So one of the, 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 my goals in, in writing up this case study was to show how this tool can be used, even in cases where most of the ancestors being researched were enslaved, um, and, and that can be done simply by gleaning as much information as you can from the non-genetic evidence that is there to be found. And, Bernice, you know how I can go on and on. So if you want to interrupt me at any moment, please let me know. No, I, what I'm really happy to hear you say is that oral history does lend a great deal of credibility to individuals that are trying to connect the dots with their family. And sometimes that's where you begin. That's what you have. And so I want you to continue on with this this discussion about the oral history and where did your oral history come from? Um, certainly. So, like, even issue, when you're using DNA, you have to start with a focused research question, just as we don't kind of take a scattershot approach when we're looking at uh, regular documentation, you begin your DNA to corroborate oral history with a question. And my focus question for this uh, for this case study was um, to who were the parents of my second great grandfather? My second great grandfather was the Garrett. He's on. You know, I can see my great-grandfather in the 1870 census household he headed. I can see his name and the name of his uh, wife on my great-grandfather's death certificate. Um, and, but 
until we reconnected with another Garrett line, I certainly didn't have a clue about who his third, who his parents were, the people who would be my third great grandparents. Mm-hmm. And we back, we've been having uh, reunions involving Garrett family members since 1933, and they were surviving like original reunion programs. And the person who organized these reunions um, had moved away to Columbia, South Carolina. We were in the upstate in Lawrence, um, but he would, he didn't sever connections with his folk in Lawrence. And so in the early thirties, he organized these family reunions. Well, I'll tell you in 1986, decades later, we're still having the reunions every other year, first weekend in August in Lawrence. And a woman shows up, her name, her, she was the late Ruth Simons Nicholson, shows up with her older sister. She's in her early 60s. She has this huge scrapbook, including one of these reunion programs. Um, coincidentally, we were, it was held, that, that 1933 or 34 reunion was held at the very same church that we, where we were meeting that year in 1986. And I'm sure that you and others have had this kind of mystical kind of mystical experience. She shows up, she shows us all this stuff. Clearly we're Ken, right? And we, um, we find out we both live in D.C., Washington, D.C. She, by the way, was a manuscript archivist at the Library of Congress. We return to D.C. We have this like very long telephone conversation. She mailed me some stuff, some original stuff, some newspaper articles. The woman had a heart attack and like died by the end of that month. So she shows up the first oh, weekend in August. Wow. She, we have this, you know, we make this connection and she dies. And um, before the, you know, that August, 1986. But she had, in the meantime, she and her sister had connected our two lines again. And, and the significance of the story is that her grandfather, his name was Casper George Garrett, and he had, uh, he was a lawyer. He was licensed to practice law in 1890 in South Carolina. He was quite prominent, prominent enough to have a bio included in one of those History of the American Negroes, South Carolina edition. It was a 1919 publication. And in that, in his bio, he states the names of his paternal grandparents. He said, my paternal grandparents were Sam and Nancy Garrett. And he gives the names of his parents and so for decades after that, we just assumed, well, um, she said and her aunt said that uh, my great-grandfather and her grandfather were first cousins. Those must be my second great-grandfather's parents, too. But I had not and no one else had kind of gone through the documentation to try to prove that. And mm-hmm. so one of the things you'll see in this upcoming uh, article is all of the uh, – documents that were used just to, in the first instance, show that the Isaac Garrett, who was my my second great grandfather, was in fact uh, related or had connections to this other line where a man who was um, old enough to have remembered who his grandparents were to um, to prove that Isaac was somehow connected to him. I, I think that came out disjointed. But the fact of the matter is we had no direct evidence about who the parents of Isaac Garrett um, were. We only had this 
old tradition memorialized in that 1919 uh, biographical sketch about the great-grandparents of this uh, claimed cousin. But there was no direct evidence even that Isaac was um, an uncle to this person's father. So that required actual looking at what there was to look at, including, you know, the typical things you, we look at is probate records, for example. Um, but there were other things. There were tax rolls. For, um, we know that in the case of enslaved ancestors, one um, tried and proven method is to try to, to locate them as, as close as you can to the date on which they were emancipated, because very often that's where they were enslaved. In the case of my second great-grandfather, we find him in an 1866 uh, tax roll in Lawrence County. So we know he was there. Um, you mentioned my book. And in preparing my book, I actually looked at every page of the Lawrence County census record in, um, for 1870. And I did that in the book for purposes of comparing uh, enslavers in 1860 to families bearing the same surnames in 1870. But in the course of that, it enabled me to kind of state definitively that um, he was the only Isaac Garrett who was black living there at that time. Um, I, I found a probate record where a likely probate record where uh, evidencing his sale to someone with a different surname um, but there was no Isaac using that surname on the 1870 census. That's the kind of kind of what I call gleaning of records that we need to do when we're researching enslaved ancestors, where we have no direct evidence. There's no record that says Sam and Nancy Garrett. Well, they may have been Casper Garrett's grandparents, but nothing says they were Isaac Garrett's grandparents. Um, so mm-hmm. one of the things um, I'm excited about about this article is just kind of showcasing those kinds of um, methodologies that you can use when researching this, this community. Um, we've all read the case studies in the queue involving people of Western European descent where they look at tick marks on tax records. Well, the tax rolls proved to be very useful for my research also because, for example, my thoroughbred grandparents, we, we hypothesized he was Samuel Garrett, well, there were three black men named Samuel Garrett living in Lawrence County during the relevant time. But tax records helped me to distinguish among them. There was a, a, an older gentleman who was referred to as a Samuel Senior on the 1869 uh, state census. And there was another person often enumerated near him, in fact, right next door to him in 1870, who in 1869 on the same page was referred to as Samuel Jr. So we all know the old thing about, you know, when that uh, people often listed people as senior or junior just to distinguish uh, between same-named men in the same neighborhood. But in this case, there was more than anecdotal evidence, really, that this particular state enumerator of the 1869 state census was not using it that way. He was using it to refer to fathers and sons. And, and what I did to make that case was to, again, I went through the entire line, page by page, the 1869 state tax census. And when I did it, now it's online. When I did it, and in fact, when I published my book in 2016, it was not online. So I had to go to the, the archives and like look at each page. 
And what I could see is that there were many other pages where people of the same, men of the same race with the same names did not have the junior or senior postnominal. Um, but on other cases where they did, and especially this is true in the case of, of white men, I could find there a couple of their probate files and see that, yes, indeed, they did have a son with the same name. So that, this is the kind of what you have to do when you don't have any direct evidence, but there is evidence to be gleaned from what is there. Um, so, I, you know, I won't... Well, I just want to say, first of all, I mean, you, you went to these documents, but you started off with something much earlier. You started off with information about, uh, you said, Casper George Garrett? Yes. And then you had the information, you had information (laughs) in the various uh, reunion programs to tell you something, and then this lady gave you information. Well, right. And but but the thing is, is that um, and and this is another interesting thing. One of those early reunion programs listed a woman as the family historian. The same woman, Casper George Garrett's granddaughter, who who um, I met in 1986, she had gone down to Lawrence County, South Carolina, from D.C. in the 70s and interviewed that woman who was on the 33 reunion program as a family historian. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. She was in the 90s in the 70s. So it, to me it's kind of mystical because she was in direct contact with her and and was able to interview her before she died. And I should mention that after Ruth died, her son did allow me to go through her files and to copy relevant documents. Um, oh, great. But, there, but there's a difference between, and, and I say, so we've always in my family just accepted this as fact. You know, these are up there, bigger mm-hmm. This is, But we hadn't, no one had documented it to the extent possible. No one had done the, what we call the reasonably exhaustive research showing that there's no, all of the evidence points to this conclusion. So mm-hmm. even without DNA, I felt con- confident about the documentary, the indirect documentary evidence pointing to not only my third grade grandparents, but also my fourth grade grandparents. Because this elderly, this older couple, the older Sam, um, who lived next door to my third grade grandfather, who uh, was, had a wife named Hannah, they're named in the the same person who enslaved my third day grandfather Isaac, enslaved Sam and Hannah Garrett, the elderly couple, who um, were sold for only five hundred bucks, indicating old age, um, when the enslaver died, and so they were sold to someone with a different surname. In eighteen seventy, this eighty-four year old Sam and seventy-nine year old Hannah are. Enumerated with the Garrett surname. Like Isaac, they went back to the enslaving family that they more closely identified with. Um, there were uh, Samuel, my third great grandfather, had a 14 year old named Hannah, probably named after her grandmother. Um, there, were, there, was mm-hmm. all, there were all kinds of connections. And there were connections regarding those family reunion programs. This, this is where tracing everybody's, uh, everybody's pedigree comes into play because. I could I recognize some of the names and could trace others. On the same the thirty three and thirty four reunion programs, it was clear that descendants of Casper and descendants of 
Uh, my second great-grandfather considers themselves to be kin because they all were on the program together. You know, yes. my great-uncle mm-hmm. talking about clanship and all of So all of that work was done and was necessary to be done before you even, you know, I even started to think about using DNA. For me, DNA uh, didn't so much fill in gaps. It just, it just corroborated what I had hypothesized was the truth. And, and I want to talk just a bit about the DNA standards that were incorporated in the second edition of Genealogy Standards, um, the book that was published last year. It was published by the Board for Certification of Genealogists, but as always, it is for use by the entire field. And the DNA-specific standards that were published, similar to all of the standards, all of the standards are meant to be information about best practices, tried and proven methods that expert genealogists have used over the years. And that is certainly true of the DNA standards that were included. The early adopters of DNA genetic genealogists you know, we've had about 20 years of experience now. There were things, there are things they figured out that it makes sense to do when you're analyzing this information, when you're using this information. And that's all that, that genealogy standards attempted to do was to compile these best practices. Um, we, um, I don't want to say we, because again, this, is, this book is for the field, but you know, there will be cases where you can't use DNA evidence. People may not be willing to test, for example. But that is really no different from a case where um, there's a record that might be helpful, but the courthouse burned. So the, and the original record didn't exist. So you look for what records might exist. One of the things that the new standards uh, provide guidance on is kind of what are the elements of a testing plan. You need a, a targeted testing plan a plan that will produce DNA evidence that is uh, likely to provide answers to your question. And remember, our question is, who were the parents of Samuel Garrett, uh, Isaac Garrett, I'm sorry. And to, um, to create or develop a testing plan, you need to know something not only about the different categories of DNA tests that are available, but also what you can get from the various uh, direct-to-consumer DNA testing companies. So for the few people on, on who are listening who might not uh, have this in the forefront of their brains, I just want to give a very brief story of the four kinds of DNA that you can test today. Um, and the one that all of the companies is a test of autosomal DNA. Those are the tests of those first. 22 chromosomes, and those are inherited from both parents, autosomal DNA, which means that um, you can, everyone can take that test. Um, Y chromosome, which is one of the 23rd pair uh, that reveals information about your patrilineal line, a Y chromosome is passed from father to son, um, usually without much change, although mutations can occur. So only men can take that test for Y chromosome. X chromosomes, which usually the companies are testing it as part of their test of autosomal DNA. And that's the X chromosome is the other in the 23rd pair. And it is passed 
a father passes an ex to female children, a mother passes an ex to both children, and so there's a particular inheritance pattern that you can detect from just knowing that. And then the other is mitochondrial DNA, the DNA that's inherited from your mother, but only females pass it on. So in, in my particular case, because we're trying to, we were trying to find or find evidence of the parents of a male, we, it was not possible to test mitochondrial DNA. Um, not at least of which is men don't pass on mitochondrial DNA. Um, there are circumstances where you may be able to find related females that you can establish a relationship and, and do the test, but in my case, that was not possible. So the two tests that, that were available that could possibly shed light on this question of Isaac Garrett's parents were autosomal DNA and Y DNA. Now, at present, I think it's still true that the only company, the only direct-to-consumer company matching of Y-DNA test results um, is family tree DNA. And because of that, and because I, I had uh, candidates for Y-DNA testing, I had all of my DNA test takers test on family tree DNA. The other thing to keep in, in mind um, when you're choosing testing companies is that you want to look at the kind of size and composition of the company's reference population. I think that it's, I think it's true that African Americans, especially those who came out of slavery, are underrepresented in these reference population data banks. Um, and having said that, though, I actually did uh, find someone in the database who is one of our Garrett's and who was, gave me consent to use his information and um, to join our DNA study, basically. So I was surprised to find even one person um, willing to do that. I should say I found other people who just were not willing to uh, share information. Um, once you devise a testing plan, you have to, again, identify people willing to test who might have DNA, relevant DNA. So in my case, I had my late father. Um, there were none of his siblings available for testing. He had an older sister who um, wasn't really in a position to give consent. Uh, but he had, but what you can do in a situation like that is to use kind of surrogates for older members of the older generation. Because remember, People in the older generations are going to have more of the ancestors' DNA than people mm -hmm. in, in, in the generations afterwards. So, for example, I had two of my first cousins, school brothers, who were children of my father's sister, my father's late sister, tested for me. So they kind of served as surrogates for their mother. Um, I also had a cousin who was a third cousin. Her great grandmother and my great grandfather, great grandfather, were brother and sister, and. There were other people who matched nearly everybody that I tested from all of the different lines, but I could not document their relationship to the other ancestors in this DNA study. And so I did not use their DNA. Because that's, that's another, that goes back to that question of having complete pedigrees. And, and I should mention with regard to that question and all of the others, is that DNA 
testing and matching is all about probabilities. It's all about the odds of your matching on the same segment of a chromosome and the probability that that segment would have changed, um, would have recombined and, and therefore changed. And so anything you can do to um, reduce the possibility that you are misattributing DNA to the wrong ancestor is useful mm-hmm. to do. And that's another thing I did in this case study. There were certainly pedigree gaps in all of my testers. I had I ended up having 12 test takers, six from my Garrett line, and six from two brothers who, where there were there was direct evidence that they were brothers, and that they were descended from these, this couple, the hypothesized third great grandparents, and and I did a lot of comparison, comparing between the autosomal DNA between these folks. Um, there was some triangulation. There was a time when people thought of triangulation, the um, having at least three people from three different lines sharing the same or overlapping segments. That's uh, triangulation. There was a time when people held that up as the gold standard. Um, nowadays, that's not so much true. It's, it's significant, and it heightens the possibility that you actually are sharing inherited DNA, um, but it's not the end-all and be-all I think that people once viewed it as. But in my case, there was some triangulation among these three lines, the two brothers who could, who had direct, whose descendants had direct evidence, and my line. Um, there was also a Y-DNA match. And if you look at Blaine Bettinger's uh, book, he says you need a minimum of two people to compare Y-DNA. And I had the minimum of two people, one person from my line, my dad, and one person from who descended from Casper George Garrett. The, I think the test that you can take today, it, it looks at 111 uh, locations to, or mm-hmm. SNPs to determine how closely related you are. So at 111, uh, using a 111 marker test, these two people were their only matches on family tree DNA, and they only had three differences, which all of the experts say three differences means that they're related within a genealogical time frame, that more than half of people, the people who match that closely are fifth or, or closer cousins, and which is consistent with, with my documentary work that the two people matching, my dad and this cousin, um, were actually... Uh, third cousins uh, once removed. Mm-hmm. And there was also on one of the locations uh, what they call a null value, meaning it was zero. And that was significant also because null values are rare. There are, there are certain ethnicities where it's not as rare, but they are rare. And here these two were also sharing a null value on the same uh, DNA Y segment. So all of those factors, um, if people were not convinced by the indirect, the really copious indirect evidence of relationship, these DNA tests proved, or I shouldn't say proved, added additional <laughs> evidence. And with certainly, because okay. that's what you're doing in the end, you're, in the end you're just looking to see if the DNA evidence is consistent with your paper trail. So first you need the right. paper trail. 
and then you need the DNA evidence. Um, I don't know. Are there any questions or should I? Well, one of the things I want to know from you, because, you know, people are are certainly listening and saying, okay, you've had a targeted testing plan because you were trying to determine who the parents were of, of Isaac Garrett. And so with your targeted plan, you use an autosomal DNA test and a Y DNA test or just the Y DNA test? Oh, you know, I have heard it said, and I think it's true, that the Y DNA test on its own is, is not going to help a whole lot because all it does is to confirm that you are you have a common patrilineal ancestor. You really need mm-hmm. to use the two in conjunction. So the Y DNA mm-hmm. test just added additional evidence that these two people in these two groups, and the two groups were my, my line and the other two lines where um, – where they had more direct evidence of their relationship to the uh, hypothesized third ancestral couple. So I used both. It's just additional evidence. The other thing that I did was just to, looking at the two groups, look, taking, and this is not triangulation, it's just looking at pairs of testers in each of the groups who matched on distinct segments of DNA. And I came up with about 30 matching segments where each pair was at least one from my second great grandfather and one from the second group. Um, there were, uh, even looking at the DNA, I, I, there's another point I wanted to make too, because I've heard it or read it, heard it said that the biogeographical estimates that are, you can get from all of the companies, doesn't have a lot of use when it comes to genealogy. And I beg to differ with that, too, because, you know, there's a, to my knowledge, there's only been one peer-reviewed study by people from Mill universities that looked at the American genome and, and confirmed what we've heard other folks saying, that um, if, you, if your family came out of the South and, and out of the enslaved community, everybody has some uh, appreciable amount of European every African-American, whatever it looked like. Um, we just we all have it, and um, looking at those, it's less likely in all of my testers. That was true of all of my testers, um, ranging from like nine percent to forty something percent. It's just less likely that those folks are sharing that European DNA to some common European ancestor, because mm-hmm. all of the all of the methodologies that are used are all geared to trying to prevent you from misattributing DNA or assuming that you're sharing uh, because of one couple when, in fact, you're sharing because of some unidentified earlier couple. And I say couple because even in my case, it's unclear. We're looking at the assumed ancestral couple because it's unclear and we can't tell whether this shared DNA came from my character or grandfather or his mate, but we know it came from one of them. So the focus was on identifying the parents, the common ancestral couple. And the, the, the concern is that if you don't have a complete pedigree, if you don't know exactly where you came from, you could be sharing through earlier ancestors that you have not identified. So that's another thing that has, those are the kinds of um, circumstances that have to be taken into account as you analyze your DNA evidence. 
And, and I did that in many different ways. One of the ways, one of the, the facts that helped me is that, you know, our family is dispersed all across the country now. One of my test takers has been in Seattle for decades, and a lot of them um, had gone to Columbia, South Carolina. The only a person in the 12 of the 12 test takers who um, was a full member of the Lawrence County community, meaning both his parents, were members of that community was my dad. And with respect to him, I actually was able to construct a complete pedigree, at least back to that common ancestral couple. And, and the, uh, if you look at genealogy standards, it defines pedigree, it defines the depth of a pedigree, and that's the rule that you see in the definition of depth, being able to document at least back to the common ancestral couple. So with respect to my dad, also with respect to one of my cousins um, who is, um, she's elderly, but her mind is sharp, and she is the closest living generational descendant of my third great-grandparent. Her grandfather, her maternal grandfather, was a 17-year-old in the 1870 census household of my third grandparents. And and not surprisingly, she has more of the of their DNA than anybody else and everybody I tested matches her. Um, oh. <laughs> and and she is another one who I was able to um complete her pedigree back to that ancestral couple. And and I was able to show that for example one of my my third one of my third Garrett cousins who tested at my request, she she only had one grandparent from Lawrence. You know, one grandparent was from Georgia, one, and because and the concern is that, if I didn't make this clear initially, is that when your ancestors are in a, were in an enslaved community, they were usually, especially in rural areas, isolated geographically. They had limited personal autonomy. A lot of marrying into the same family groups occurred, and that occurred even into the 20th century for folks living in rural communities. It, it occurred in my family. I have an instance, and I talk about it, um, I, I discuss it in the article, where one of my test takers, who was the farthest removed from this couple, he was like in the seventh generation, but he, was an, he shared with enough people, including this woman who was the closest uh, descendant. He, uh, he is a descendant. We both are Garrett and Nilly. My grand, my grandfather's wife, um, uh, her uncle married my grandfather's sister. So we share multiple common ancestors, and that is another factor that we need to explain away um, when we're analyzing results. Except it didn't really affect my analysis because I wasn't comparing that double cousin with other Garrett's in my line. What was important was the Garrett DNA he shared with the other test takers in the second group. So if this sounds complicated, it's because it is. But the wonderful thing is you plot through all of this and you can reach a credible conclusion. Is one person who looked at this for me said that this was the DNA evidence is icing on the cake. I and, and mm-hmm. I thought that was you know, we have this this reasoned proof argument based on indirect evidence and the DNA evidence is like really perfectly consistent with that. 
But what it sounds like you're saying, though, is that you were very comfortable with your your research. I was. And, and I, as and you I said, that was the icing on the cake. When the DNA but, but, results came in, it just corroborated everything else that you've done. But if people read, read you can read argument, and if you are not comfortable because it's so much, it's all indirect evidence, there's no direct evidence of this, mm-hmm. then that's a place where DNA is more evidence conclusion is logical and, and credible. And, and okay. that's the other yeah. use. I, that's why I think DNA evidence can be particularly useful for researching ancestors that came out of slavery. Yes. Because it adds yeah. that additional, you're creating evidence or revealing evidence, additional evidence that we couldn't have done 20 years ago. Well, this sounds like just a, a fascinating article, and I'm looking forward to reading it in the quarterly. And so what is the title of your article so that when it does come out, we can all look for it and rejoice and share our thoughts on what well, you I have tell, put together? I can tell you that it, 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 I don't think it's going to change. That the Isaac Garrett, parents to Isaac Garrett will be referenced in the title, and the title also reference oral tradition because okay. it was documentary evidence, indirect documentary evidence, and there was oral tradition, and then DNA just added some additional compelling evidence that undershore the, the other evidence. So do you have any parting words? You've given us several gems here as we've listened to you uh, share your journey and your thoughts on on just the whole genealogical process. But do you have any parting words before we close out? Um, just very, very quickly. I don't, I don't know if um, people notice. I'm sure that they have already. But one of the uh, genealogy standards says, you know, you can use these tools that are being developed to um, – help you analyze this material. And Blaine Bettinger's Shared CM Project is, is one that is widely used. And he did release a new um, new material in March of this year. And it was in time enough for me to incorporate it into my article because he, he kind of does the work for you once you figure out how many centimorgans people share. Yes. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's important to know. Um, but the main thing is just to the people who are the people there's still people who are hesitant to use this and they think it's too difficult. And what I found and and, and I kind of check my perceptions by running my conclusions by people who are acknowledged as experts is that this is all about reducing the probability that you're misattributing the DNA to the wrong ancestor. And there are lots mm-hmm. of ways to do that in how you analyze the DNA, but also in using your documentary evidence, like the geographic dispersal, for example, of folks from this home county in South Carolina. So it's so eminently doable. I'm really just excited about it because the only other article we've seen involving enslaved people in DNA was Renise Hollister's award-winning article where she used Y-DNA to identify a European forebear. That was like the rare mm-hmm. case where Y-DNA actually followed the surname, which is not true in the case of enslaved Africans where the surname may not have anything at all to do with the Y-DNA. It's more yeah. likely that it doesn't. Yeah. 
So right. that was my parting words. I encourage people to use this well, new tool, which can be particularly useful for researching enslaved ancestors. Right. And I, I really want to encourage individuals that have utilized DNA uh, to actually verify, collaborate your enslaved ancestor to to share that with us. Talk to us. We we need to talk and share with each other how we're going through this entire process. And so, LaBrenda, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. And everyone else, I look forward to you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Thank you, LaBrenda. Thank you.